want to start off with a question. How many of you have ever suffered from tetraphobia? Anyone? Tetraphobia. Okay. It's not the fear of Tetris, although uh, that can be a scary game, right? All those blocks falling and trying to turn them in time. It's actually the fear of the number four. And now you might say, who would be afraid of the number four? Well, if you grew up in the Far East, uh, China specifically, and also Korea, you might be afraid of the number four because the number four sounds exactly like the word for death. And that's not a very fun thing to talk about and to think about. So there's a lot of uh, examples. Uh, if you've ever traveled to China, you maybe have been in an elevator in a, in a tall building, and you've seen the numbers go up 11, 12, 12A, 12B, 15. And you're like, what? Well, there's no number 13, no floor 13, which is kind of obvious. They do that in the States too. But there's no 14th floor because one and four together sound like want to die. So 14 is kind of one of those scary numbers. Also, phone numbers in China. You want to avoid the number four in your phone number at all costs. Uh, and actually, the best number is eight because eight sounds like the word for blessing. So the more eights you have in your number, and people will pay prime money to get numbers with a bunch of eights in it. <laughs> but uh, I got in trouble not a few times uh, for joking with people that I was going to get the phone number 14141414. And uh, people are like, ah, we don't joke about that here. That's not funny. Well, then I come back to America where, you know, we just kind of deal with death very flippantly, right? We talk about it all the time. And I was looking up some, some jokes, and I'm not going to tell any of them, but I found on Amazon there's a book called The Best Ever Book of Undertaker Jokes. And we, we joke about it. We laugh about it, right? We, we talk about the zombie apocalypse, and we're just all like, oh, fascinated with death. Well, whether you've been socially conditioned to avoid talking about death at all costs because of fear of talking about it, or to make light of it, we can't avoid death. We can't avoid talking about it. We can't avoid thinking about it. And as Christians, I think there must be a third way. We must confront death head on, which means getting a right perspective from the one who holds our very lives in his hands. I think our problem in a fallen world is that we avoid thinking about death and we operate from an under-the-sun mentality. Kind of the big idea, if you're taking notes, is that we need to get over the sun and we need to embrace the reality that we're not prepared to truly live unless we're truly prepared to die. We're not prepared to truly live unless we're truly prepared to die. What does all this talk about under the sun and over the sun? If you haven't been around the last couple weeks, as Dan said, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been looking at some themes in the book of Ecclesiastes. One of them is vanity. We have the table up here, vanitas. The Hebrew word hevel means breath or smoke. It's something that you, you can't grasp, you can't grab onto. Others have translated it as frustration or meaningless. 
So that's a big theme in Ecclesiastes. The other theme, one of the other themes is this idea of under the sun, right? It's, it's this life that we experience here in this fallen world, this frustrating life in the world under the sun. And some have suggested that can refer to physically being located under the sun. Others suggest that it's kind of this idea of time, that we live in this, this time that's frustrating. Another theme is striving after the wind or chasing the wind. Just this meaninglessness of going after the things of the world. And we've seen that in this idea of, of pleasure last week and just this frustration fi- trying to find meaning. In chapter one, the question is asked, what does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's kind of the beginning of this whole series of all these questions. Ecclesiastes is full of many puzzling questions. Questions that really stop us in our tracks and make us slow down and think about our lives in relation to these ideas of time, of work, and of death. What does it all mean And as Christians, we need to ask, how do we make sense of all this? You know, Ecclesiastes may seem like a strange book to go to, to find answers, when it seems like it just raises more questions, right? Like, why would I go here for answers when it's, I'm just reading all of these crazy questions that it doesn't seem like there's an answer to? Well, if you uh, have been around, you know that when I I preach, I like to recommend books. And uh, this is a book that Dan and I have been reading through. It's called Living Life Backward. It's by a guy named David Gibson. He's a a Scottish pastor. And uh, I would highly recommend this book if you're really wanting to dig into Ecclesiastes. It has a great, uh, just kind of walking through chapter by chapter. Living Life Backward. The subtitle is How Ecclesiastes Teaches Us to Live in Light of the End. Here's what he says in the preface. Ecclesiastes also makes a very simple point. Life is complex and messy, sometimes brutally so. But there is a straightforward way to look at the mess. The end will put it all right. The end, when we stand before God as our creator and judge, will explain everything. Left to our own devices, we tend to live life forward. One day follows another, and weeks turn into months, and months into years. We do not know the future, but we plan and hope and dream of where we will be and what we would like to be doing and whom we might be with. We live forward. Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we are heading, then we can know for sure what we need to do before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end sculpt our priorities and goals, our greatest ambitions, and our strongest desires. I want to persuade you that only if you prepare to die can you really learn how to live. That is confronting death head on. Are you ready? Let's dive into God's word and see how we can prepare to die. Ecclesiastes 3, 16 
through 4.3. It's printed here in your worship guide. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. All are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Well, the first thing we're going to look at here is the frustration of evil, wickedness, and oppression under the sun. The frustration of evil, wickedness, and oppression under the sun. Koheleth begins here with an observation of his experience. He said, I saw under the sun. Again, this idea of under the sun, it's the place and from his perspective, and from the perspective of many, where it seems as if God is not on his throne. Where things are just happening, life is just going on. We saw that in chapter 1. See it in the beginning of chapter 3. There's a time for everything. Just this idea of, of things come and things go. Seasons come and seasons go. And the world just goes on. And it seems like God is, is far out there. He's not in control. It can appear that way. He says, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I love Psalm 89, 14. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Talking the psalmist, talking to God, saying righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In other words, this is the way the world is supposed to work. God as king on his throne, having things in the world work justly and righteously. Koheleth, I think, here is saying, this is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how the world is supposed to work. Kind of speaking about the retribution principle here, this idea that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. We talked about that a lot last summer when we went through Job. But under the sun, in this life, Kohela sees the opposite. 
But he doesn't let what he sees and what he experiences determine his reality. I think verse 17 here is probably one of the clearest examples of Kohelet's faith in God. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. He is saying here, yes, I believe that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. I believe, God, that you will get the last word and that at the end, you will judge justly. This is actually how the entire book ends. We've already mentioned this idea of living life backwards, right? Starting at the end. I know Dan's talked about that. The end of Ecclesiastes needs to inform the way we read the book. And we often quote Ecclesiastes 12, 13, which is actually the second to last verse in the book. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, right? That's kind of how we're supposed to live. But the, the, I think the temptation that most of us face is, how do, what can I do? What do I have to bring to the table? How can I make sense of this world around me? And we get focused on, on self. Again, Dan talked about that last week. I, I, I. Well, do you know what the last verse in Ecclesiastes says? The verse right after that? Ecclesiastes 12, 14. It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's what Koheleth is saying in his heart here by faith in 3.17. He's saying things around me don't look good right now, but God will judge. Do we live in light of this reality I think we, we all want the retribution principle to be true, right? We all want people to get what they deserve, in a sense. Christians, on the one hand, we want it to be true because it's what the Bible teaches. And our secular friends, they want it to be true too, right? Karma, right? You hear people talking about karma all the time. That's the new, that's the new buzzword, right? You do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. You do good things, good things are going to happen to you. You reap what you sow. And again, the Bible does teach that, okay? But it doesn't always work out that way in this life, does it? We don't always see that work out the way maybe we would want to, or even saying, God, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Why is this, why is this world, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? Dan was talking about this last week. We want, this, we want the world to be this way until the tables are turned, right? Until the tables are turned on us. You know, what's the mantra of our age right now? Don't tell me how to live, right? I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do whatever makes me happy. You hear that all the time. And it's funny how this works out, Right? You see the folly of this worldly thinking. When God as the just judge is removed from the equation, then it's just a total free-for-all. I want to challenge you. If this is the way, if this is your mindset, hey, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. 
If you, if you say that and you live that way and you're also the person that's talking about karma, well, what about when you're not living the way you're supposed to be living? There's a, there's a crazy amount of hypocrisy right now in this whole mindset, right? If you want to do what you want to do, then why worry about anybody else? Why worry about other people doing bad things? Why worry about other people doing bad things to you? But nobody lives that out consistently. And I think, you know, we need to be careful as Christians. We're not off the hook too. We like to compartmentalize God's reign in our own lives, don't we? Okay, God, you can, you can tell me how to parent my kids. You can tell me about how I should love my neighbor and how I should, you know, do good, do justice. But don't go looking at my finances. Don't talk to me about how I spend my free time, right? Don't go poking in these areas where I'm anxious about my future. But what if there's a different way to approach this life under the sun? If there was, would it help us to make sense of what we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3? We're going to jump ahead there. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Again, Koheleth here, he makes an observation of what he sees around him. He sees in this world oppression by powerful people and that those who are oppressed have no one to comfort them. And his conclusion is that it's better to be dead than alive. He says that in verse 2. And then better yet, he says, it's better to have never been born and to have not seen all these evil deeds that are done under the sun. And you say, well, that's pretty depressing. I, I know what it's like to feel this way. Uh, when Lindsay and I were first married, we were living in La Crosse, and I remember we walked, I think we were in a hardware store, we were walking through the parking lot, and we were talking about having kids. And I was just like, I don't know if I want to bring kids into this crazy world. Well, now, you know, here we are. So, but now what, right? I can't go back, right? I don't want to go back, but I know what, I know what that felt like to say, man, there's just so much craziness going on. Why would I even want to bring kids into this world? I love Tremper Longman's summary of Ecclesiastes. I think Dan mentioned it two weeks ago. He says, life is difficult, then you die. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Life is difficult, and then you die. And that's one of the realities that I want my children to embrace. I want them to understand that. I want them to understand that life is hard, and you're going to die, right? The reality of death under the sun is what Koheleth talks about. Let's jump back to chapter 3, verse 18. 3, 18 to 22. The reality of death under the sun. We see in these verses here, Koheleth's analysis of death. Verse 19, the children of man are going to die just like the beasts. That's a true statement under the sun. All have the same breath. It's also a true statement under the sun. Man has no advantage over the beasts. True statement under the sun. 
all our wisdom, all our innovation, all our money, all our attempts to prolong our lives doesn't matter, right? We're not going to live forever. Then he concludes, for all is vanity. Again, kind of the big theme of the book. Verse 20, all go to one place, true under the sun, right? All are from dust, and to dust all return. Sounds a lot like Genesis 3.19. After Adam and Eve fell and God spoke the curse to Adam, he said, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Life is difficult, then you die. In the last two verses of chapter 3, Koheleth is going to ask two really important questions. The first one is, who knows? And this is a question of uncertainty, and we actually see some form of this question five times in Ecclesiastes. Who knows, and here, it's who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of beasts go down into the earth. Most commentators think this is not speaking about a theology of the afterlife. Um, I think there's some good evidence for this. It's basically just saying man has no advantage over the beasts. Uh, The words for breath and spirit and vanity are all kind of related here, and he's just saying you're going to your breath is going to expire. You're going to die. It's, it's pretty much that simple. So that's the first question. Who knows what's going to happen? And then we have another observation and another question in verse 22. Again, he says, I saw, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. All right. So just work hard, build up your retirement fund, live out the American dream, and just coast off into the sunset, right? Because that's all there is in this life. That's all we got. You get one shot, so you might as well enjoy it. No, that's the under the sun mentality. And how's that working for us as a society? We've got more stuff. We've got more toys. We've got more leisure time than ever before. And we're more miserable, more depressed, more anxious than ever before. Go read the stats about suicide, about anxiety. Again, Dan talked about it last week. It's crazy, right? People are asking, like Koheleth, The question he asks in verse 22. Who can bring me to see what will be after me? And they've bought into the enemy's lie and the lie of our age that there is nothing after me, so I might as well just live it up now. Get all you can while you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. On Friday, uh, Cademan and I, my son, my 12-year-old, we were uh, in downtown Appleton. We were on College Avenue, and there was a car parked in front of us. Fun little car. 
And uh, the bumper sticker said, everyone dies, not everyone lives. And I got to have a great conversation with Caveman. I said, you know, what do you think that means? I said, what do you think that means for the driver of this fancy little sports car, right? For him, it's what I was just talking about, right? Hey, I might as well, I got, I got one chance, right? I'm going to die. I might as well live it up, right? Might as well tool around in my little car. Nothing against driving sports cars, but that's what it meant for him. I said, what does that mean for us, right? What does it mean to really live? Like, we're all going to die. What does it mean to really live? And trying to watch his little 12-year-old brain, you know, process that. That was pretty fun. But again, the message is, get all you can. Have fun doing it. But that's not what it means to truly live. Again, the big idea, we're not prepared to truly live unless we're truly prepared to die And Gibson, in his book, summarizes this really well. He says, In our day, we are submerged beneath an abundance of trivia in our fully wired, always connected, completely digitized world of social media and limitless sources of entertainment. This is important. It says, The preacher, Koheleth, would not be negative about any of these things in themselves. He would simply ask us, if we can cope with looking death in the eye, or whether we are trying to live in bubbles we think will never burst. The reality is is that if death doesn't inform the way we live, then death is something we are pretending doesn't exist. We're going to look here at the reality of death over the sun. I said that I want my kids to to embrace the reality that life is difficult and then you die, right? The reality of death under the sun. But more than that, I want them to believe and embrace and live out the reality of death over the sun. I want them to live life backward. Are we, as individuals, are we as a Christian community, Are we pretending like death doesn't exist? Either by being afraid of it or by making light of it? Do we read the the who knows and the who can bring him to see what will be after him? Do we read those questions and just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we'll never know, right? All is meaningless. We can't know. Well, let's look at these questions. Who knows? God knows, right? He's already spoken on the matter. He's already told us what is true. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The one who came from over the sun to live under the sun and to conquer our under the sun frustration. He can bring us to see what will be after us. The one who judged between the righteous and the wicked when he was nailed to the cross. The one who took our sin and became a curse for us. You know, I wonder how the disciples felt after Jesus was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb. Do you think they asked questions like, who knows? 
Or, I wonder what will happen to our little movement now. But then something amazing happened. The one who came from over the sun to live and die under the sun, he rose up from the grave. And for 40 days, he walked with his disciples. And then he went back over the sun, right? And he sent his spirit to come and to comfort them. And he led them to write about his life, to write letters, to go out to the churches. One of those writers was a man who had been putting Christians to death until Jesus came to him and, spiritually speaking, put him to death, right? The old man, Saul, was killed, and the new man, Paul, was raised to life. And this new man who was truly alive in Christ, he wrote a letter to a church that was dealing with all kinds of under-the-sun struggles. Listen to this encouragement, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to his encouragement for them to grasp the beauty of life and death over the sun. And may this same word lift up our eyes above the sun, to see the sun reigning in all his glory. I'm going to close with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us, show us how to truly live because we have truly prepared to die. Because through your son, we have confronted death head on. And we, through him, have conquered the grave. You have given us new life. You have given us hope beyond the grave. Father, help us to go out and to live that hope out in a world that is filled with hopelessness, in a world that is so confused about life, about meaning, about pleasure, 
Help us, Lord, to trust you. Let us be a city on a hill, a shining light in the darkness so that others may be able to confront death head on, that others may be able to die to themselves and to live for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.